0: down to liftoff, the voyage of Apollo 11, by RD Editors. The moon landing on July 20, 1969, was the culmination of decades of effort and planning. Here's how launch day unfolded. No event in history has received such immediate and thorough coverage as the flight of Apollo 11. Tens of millions of words, printed and spoken, described the mission in every language and every medium of communication. From the moment of launch to the arrival of the astronauts aboard the USS Hornet, a team of Reader's Digest writers and editors filed exclusive reports and gathered accounts from books, magazines, newspapers, from wire services and radio and TV stations around the globe. Here is the story of that historic week when humankind first touched the moon with a silver finger and felt the heartbeat of their own world. On duty behind the reception desk at the Holiday Inn at Cocoa Beach in Florida, Vicki Hess glanced at the clock. It was 4.25am, almost time to ring room 192. The motel lobby was crowded with sleeping people, sprawled in chairs, on sofas and benches. Every available room in Cocoa Beach had been booked for months. Outside, Throngs tried to sleep in their cars, which were jammed into almost every square metre of parking space and flooded out all the way to the towering motel sign with its blazing lights. In bold black letters on the whiteboard beneath the sign ran the message, Apollo 11 crew, we're with you all the way to the moon. Vicky picked up the phone and dialed room 192. Good morning, she said. It's 4.30am. The occupant of room 192 thanked her. Put down the phone and sat groggily on the side of the bed trying to collect his thoughts. Werner von Braun was bone-tired. For two days he had had very little sleep. But this was Wednesday, July 16, 1969, and he had a crowded itinerary. In exactly five hours and two minutes, the awesome Saturn rocket would propel a 36-storey-high space vehicle off its pad at Cape Kennedy Space Centre and hurl the first men out of this world to land on the dilapidated magnificence of another, the moon. As he dressed, all sorts of thoughts crowded in on von Braun. What was the weather forecast? He turned on the TV set, with the sound low so as not to wake his wife Maria. Locally, the temperature was 25 degrees Celsius, winds from the south at 6 kilometres per hour, visibility is 16 to 25 kilometres, with a scattered cloud base at about 4,500 metres. So it looked good. And the countdown? How was it doing? At this moment, the most important man at the Kennedy Space Center was 43-year-old Rocco Petrone, the launch director. Second by second, he and his cool, brilliant launch team were taking the pulse, checking and rechecking the delicate nervous systems of the huge Apollo 11. For two hours now, propellants had been flowing into the great aluminium tanks of the Bird, 1,960 tonnes of volatile liquid oxygen and hydrogen, The fact that he had heard nothing from the launch director was reassuring to Von Braun. When he had dressed, Von Braun picked up his ancient briefcase with the broken handle. Over the years, that cracked leather bag had carried volumes of suggestions, ideas, proposals and articles, graph drawings of rocket engines, lunar vehicles, space stations. It had also been the receptacle for government turndowns and setbacks, for scathing editorial criticisms of von Braun's bizarre plans to reach the moon. But all that was behind the 57-year-old director of the Marshall Space Flight Centre. For 43 years, since he fired his first rocket at 14, he had been dreaming of this day. Now, bag in hand, he gently kissed his sleeping wife. Maria opened her eyes. Good luck, she said. Pray, was all he could say. Pray. With a friend, Von Braun made his way outside to where a helicopter stood waiting in the darkness, like a great grasshopper. He strapped himself in, the rotors began turning, and in a great sweeping half-circle the helicopter climbed into the sky. Von Braun took over the controls from the pilot. From a few metres up, the ground view was staggering. In one way or another the whole world seemed to be converging on Cape Kennedy. Cocoa Beach lay shimmering in a blaze of light. Red and blue neon strips glared before regiments of motels, restaurants and caravan parks. Floodlit signs in front of them carried all sorts of messages. Good luck Armstrong, Aldrin and Collins. Go, 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 red one. As far as the eye could see, thousands of fires twinkled on the beaches and in the camping areas on either side of Cocoa Beach. Lights sparkled from boats and launches. The Florida Marine Patrol estimated there were 3,000 boats in the area, In addition, some 300 private aircraft were circling 16 to 25 kilometres west of the launching site at the moment of blast-off. And below, every road was jammed with cars inching along, bumper to bumper, their lights blazing. Some 250,000 cars had either arrived or were en route. In all, in these final minutes of darkness of humankind's last earthbound day, it was estimated that a million people had arrived in Florida to witness the beginning of Apollo 11's epochal voyage to the moon. And around the world, hundreds of millions more would participate in the event through radio, television and press coverage. Look, said von Braun, that's what they've come to see. Isn't she beautiful? Ahead in the distance, on pad 39A, transfixed and bathed by brilliant floodlights that played over its virginal white skin, stood the moon rocket, like a mammoth cathedral spire reaching for the heavens. As the helicopter approached, the rocket ship grew in immensity. Everything about the Great Bird boggled the imagination. Its brute power came from the three great Saturn booster stages, one atop the other, towering upwards for more than three quarters of the ship's overall height. At liftoff, the five engines in the first stage would slam the pad with 33.8 million newtons of thrust, equivalent to 160 million horsepower. In that first blast, lasting two minutes and forty seconds, the five engines would gulp an incredible 1,762,719 litres of liquid oxygen and kerosene, 11,030 litres a second. The spacecraft itself, in the uppermost 30 metres of the gigantic structure, was an intricate world of its own. First came the compartment for the lunar module, the ungainly, bug-like eagle that would carry Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin down to the moon. Next on top was Columbia, the combined service and command module, with another great rocket engine and smaller thrusters on its side for altitude and roll control. In its nose was the flight deck of Apollo 11, where the astronauts worked and lived. Finally, perched on the nose, stood the launch escape system. If an emergency developed on the pad, or in the first three minutes of flight, the astronauts in the command module could be blasted off the rocket ship to land safely by parachute. The space vehicle had been assembled in the behemoth structure, in volume the largest building in the world, with 140-metre-high doors. From there, the skyscraper-tall rocket had been moved 5.6 kilometres to pad 39A by a Titanic 2,700-tonne tractor, with a crawling speed of 1.6 kilometres per hour. In all, Apollo 11 had 8 million working parts, 91 engines, and when loaded with propellants, weighed 2,768 tonnes, the weight of an average naval destroyer. No one individual can claim credit for that bird, said von Braun. It had been fashioned by 300,000 Americans, fabricated by 20,000 industries. This one mission alone would cost $320 million. The entire Apollo program to date had almost reached $29,000 million. Suddenly the helicopter passed over the perimeter of the 35,612-hectare Kennedy Space Center. While the pilot kept his hands on the set of dual controls, Von Braun gently set the machine down near the administration building. "'I didn't know you could fly a helicopter,' his companion said as they clambered out. Von Braun laughed. It's the first time I've landed one, he admitted. The four-storey launch control centre is the closest major building to Pad 39. The side facing the pad cants back at a sharp angle. This morning the canted building seemed to be rearing back in frightened awe of the giant Apollo 11, 5.6 kilometres away. Inside there was an almost visible fog of tension. Voices were hushed. Everyone knew that in spite of all the testing, The built-in safeguards, backup systems and the knowledge gained from previous Apollo flights, this mission was the most hazardous ever attempted by humankind. Von Braun entered Launch Room 1 and took up his position at a communicator console in a glass booth. Opening his battered briefcase, he extracted a thick mission manual detailing the minute-by-minute countdown. He knew it by heart. He pulled on his earphones, flicked one of the switches that could cut him in on any of 20-odd intercom circuits, glanced at the television screens, and saw the three astronauts boarding the crew transfer van for the short journey to Pad 39A. At that moment, Von Braun, the man who probably had contributed more than any other American to this epochal day, had one deep regret. He wished he were going with them. Actually, hundreds of others shared the credit for making this day possible. Among them were Dr. Kurt Debus, 60, the center's Director, Lieutenant General Sam Phillips, 48, the Apollo Programme Chief, Dr. George Mueller, 51, NASA's Associate Administrator for Manned Spaceflight. It was Phillips and Mueller who on June 26 had made the momentous decision that after eight years of development and training, both men and machines were ready for the Moon. One man alone now had operational control, the Launch Director, Rocco Petrone son of an immigrant Italian policeman. Stretching away before Petrone in row after row was his 400-person launching team. There were experts on propellants, guidance systems, pressurization, environmental control, communications, range safety. There were people concerned with each engine in every stage of the Saturn V. Others concentrated on instrumentation packs, cabling, hydraulic swivel actuators, antennas, computers. To the calm launch director, there was an enormous amount of static in the room and the tension would get worse, he knew. Cryogenic fuels, the volatile liquid oxygen and hydrogen, were still being loaded, flooding into the tanks at 32,176 litres a minute. It was tricky. To stay in liquid form, they had to be held at incredibly low temperatures, minus 145 degrees Celsius for oxygen minus 217 degrees Celsius for hydrogen. Apollo's crew was now on board, the hatch still open. They were checking their communication with the ground. The excitement was building. Looking out over his technicians, Petrone thought, in a few minutes now we'll really begin earning our pay. The excitement, the tension had spread to the waiting throngs. There were dignitaries and diplomats, and ordinary people who had journeyed from throughout the US from countries around the world. Along the beaches and on the bluffs, thousands of telescopes were focused on the giant Apollo 11. The camping grounds were black with sightseers sitting on the tops of cars and caravans. On the roads outside the space centre, several hundred motorists gave up trying to reach vantage points and stopping their cars simply got out and climbed onto the roofs. At the centre, in the VIP stands, admittance checking systems broke down. But with the countdown entering its last minutes, who sat next to whom did not seem to matter to the hundreds of US congressmen, senators, governors, mayors, Supreme Court and cabinet members, the 69 ambassadors, 100 foreign science ministers and military attaches, or even to former US President Lyndon Johnson and his wife. Nearby, the press stand was jammed with almost 3,000 reporters, telephone lines open, Filing last minute stories in 30 languages. In Launch Room 1, the countdown had reached minus 30 minutes. The hatch had been closed. The crew was isolated. The rocket escape tower on Apollo 11's nose was armed. Petrone's green clock showed minus 22 minutes. For 14 minutes, liquid oxygen now was permitted to flow into the bowels of the great engines to condition their liquid oxygen pumps, chilling them down. Von Braun, His eyes glued to the monitor screens, his ears catching every word spoken in the intercom system, saw the temperature dropping. The automatic sequence began. No one presses a button to send her off, Petrone had explained. The louvered shades rotated slightly. As the last minutes of the countdown slipped by, there was complete silence in the firing room. Von Braun swung round in his chair and looked out the window. The bird was steaming. Wisps of vented oxygen trailed from the neck of the vehicle. More than 550 kilograms of frost blanketed the great rocket. Then the voice of the communicator took up the final count. Ten. Nine. Silently Von Braun began to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The voice continued. Ignition sequence starts. Six. Five. Four. Everyone in the room held their breath. Smoke billowed out from under Apollo. Angry orange and red flames slammed out of the five great engines, and slowly, very slowly, the huge moon rocket began to rise. Five centimetres Petrone knew, a mere five centimetres, then the service arms swing back on automatic command. Majestically, on a great golden pillar of fire, Apollo rose, seemed to pause and moved slightly to the right as it was pre-planned to do, avoiding any possible collision with the tower. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Spitting flame from its engines, it roared up and above the launch control centre. Three seconds later, the blast hit the command post, causing the windows to vibrate like leaves in the wind. Higher and higher, the rocket ship rose. Then Apollo was gone. In this irretrievable moment in history, the first men were on their way to the moon. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia.